we're back after a one-week hiatus for spring break. What did I miss? I heard it was hot outside. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll catch up and we'll go over the top headlines. So many people have been primed to be afraid of anybody who shows up on their porch, uh, ringing their doorbell, or merely somebody coming up your driveway. And world-renowned fashion designer and performer Isaac Mizrahi joins us to talk about his upcoming show at Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs. I'll, I'll give you this. I'm dressing more and more like Joan Rivers every day. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. It's been two weeks, but we're back talking about the top headlines. And uh, unfortunately, we're starting with some headlines that are not so happy to talk about. Um, Let's start with the tragic, tragic story out of Washington County uh, that has unfortunately gotten some national attention. Now, I saw this headline in publications across the country. I actually just saw it on NPR a few minutes ago. Uh, A 20-year-old woman was shot to death in Washington County when the car that she was riding in accidentally pulled into the wrong driveway. They were looking for a friend's house, and it was the wrong house. And this came literally the same week, in the same breath, as the story of a Black teenager who was shot and very thankfully survived. He accidentally rang the doorbell at the wrong house in Kansas City when he was trying to pick up his his brother's. There are so many parallels to these two stories uh, of Kaylin Gillis and Ralph Yarl. And there's been a lot for us here at the TU to unpack about these stories. Uh, What can you tell us about our reporting this week that's important to know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely a tragic story. A 20-year-old woman uh, on her way to a party in a car driven by her boyfriend, followed by another car and a friend on a motorcycle. They thought they had gone to the right house, pulled into up the winding driveway of Kevin Monahan, a 65-year-old, realized they were in the wrong place, went to turn around. As they are driving away, Monahan allegedly came out on his porch and began firing a shotgun at them and mm. struck uh, Kalen Gillis in the neck. And then, of course, the story becomes kind of even more tragic in the sense that the 9-11 call that they issued ended up getting dropped for what appears to be the same reason that perhaps that they got lost on their way to this party that was only about a half mile away. And that is because of very spotty internet and cell phone coverage in so many 
parts of upstate New York. This is not uh, simply a New York problem, of course. It's a national problem. The uh, gaps in the emergency response system, being able to call 9-11 in an accident, is made very difficult in so many rural areas. It's, it's, you know, it's better than it was 15 years ago, but it's still not what it needs to be. The call that, that came from the car that was carrying Ms. Gillis was dropped and then recovered. They ended up reconnoitering uh, with emergency responders not too far away, but uh, it would appear at that point um, she was beyond help. It's unclear whether or not being able to maintain better cell coverage or stay on the line would have helped her or if her wounds were too great, but we shall see. We've been covering, of course, the basic facts of this incident that occurred you know, right around 10 o'clock last Saturday night, as well as I think probably the big, at least public event, was the bail hearing on Wednesday for Kevin Monahan, who faces uh, second-degree murder charges in this case. His attorney claims that he feared for his life. We will see how that defense prevails in court if it, this uh, ever goes to trial. He's being held without bail. I really have to give it up for Steve Hughes, who was the first reporter on the ground, as well as uh, Rebecca Ward, Brendan Lyons, Kathleen Moore, Lori Van Buren, uh, who went up there to get pictures for the bail hearing, and Lauren Stanforth, who really kind of air traffic controlled and pulled together a lot of that coverage. We cover shootings. We cover shootings a lot. But as you noted, uh, the coincidence, the tragic coincidence of this incident and the very similar factors involved in the shooting of Ralph Yarrell, although there is a racial element there, the 85-year-old who shot him is white. He is a black teenager, does not obtain in uh, the Washington County shooting where, uh, at least as far as I know, everybody involved, or at least the victim and the perpetrator, are white. But it's a story that touches on many points. And as Chris Churchill noted in an outstanding column that that's in Thursday's print edition, it speaks to kind of a culture of fear in this country and the idea that so many people have been primed and, you know, we could spend hours discussing the reasons why, but primed to be afraid of anybody who shows up on their porch, uh, ringing their doorbell, or in the case of of Kaylin Gillis, um, merely but somebody coming up your driveway. Yeah, it's a truly tragic story. And you can go to timesunion.com uh, to read the article, but also to see some video that Steve Hughes took from the press conference where Kaylin Gillis's father uh, spoke. No, it's no one's fault except for that man that pulled the trigger. You guys had no idea that something that bad could happen. Uh, Road. It was very, very emotional and dramatic. Um, head over to timesunion.com for that and more. All right. Uh, from one tragedy on to another, uh, let's talk about what happened in court this week with Nauman Hussein, who was the operator of the limo company who put the doomed limo on the road in 2018 that killed 20 people. What, what's going on there? Yeah, of course, Larry Rulison has done fantastic work on the, the Schoharie limo case from uh, just sort of covering what happens in court to deep investigative pieces, looking at the the family behind this decrepit vehicle. 
oh, we are talking on Thursday and Larry is going through a 15-page decision handed down by the state um, appellate division's third department that rejected Nauman Hussein's efforts to recover the plea deal that he accepted in 2021 that was rejected in 2022 by a new judge who replaced the retiring initial judge on the case who had accepted this plea deal. It was, as we reported and discussed extensively, a no jail deal, essentially a couple of years of probation and a couple of hundred hours of community service. And Hussein would be done free and clear, despite the fact that he is charged with 20 counts of manslaughter and as many counts as of criminally negligent homicide. Also this week, State Supreme Court Justice Peter Lynch rejected uh, Hussein's attorney's efforts to delay the trial so that they can collect the defense, that is, can collect more information about the FBI's handling of Hussein's father, Shahed Hussein, who is, uh, as we've reported, a longtime FBI confidential informant. Uh, Naman Hussein's attorney raised the question of whether or not the FBI played a role in um, getting or at least uh, papering over an inaccurate, insufficient uh, state DMV certification that this decrepit limousine uh, received. Um, it clears the way for this case to go to trial before Judge Lynch, scheduled to start on May 1st, a little bit more than uh, than 10 days from now. So pretty remarkable developments in a, in a case that has haunted this community for almost five years now. All right. Stay tuned for our reporting to come in the coming weeks. All right. Let's move off of the heavy, tragic stuff now. <laughs> We'll go to the sports world where former NFL star Antonio Brown, who was previously merely a co-owner of the Albany Empire Arena football team, now he apparently owns all of it. What's going on? Antonio Brown, the acclaimed wide receiver, the son of touchdown Eddie Brown, legendary name in local arena football circles, was brought on less than two months ago as a part owner of the team. And over the course of, of last week, began stating and letting it be known sort of through his representatives that he was now, that is last week, the 100% owner of the Albany Empire, our arena football league team. Abigail Rebell has been on top of this like nobody's business, a, a rather uh, confusing, complex story. Last Sunday, literally as the Empire were about to play their first home game, uh, Abigail posted up a wonderful story under the headline, Antonio Brown says he's the sole owner of the Albany Empire. His co-owners disagree. Um, he was claiming he owned 100%, uh, while at the time, it's quite clear, he still owned only 47.5%. There was another 47.5% owner and uh, a couple who own the remaining 5%. Now, um, that doesn't add up for me there, but okay. Antonio Brown's math didn't add oh, up. Oh, yes, correct. Yes, his his math does not add up. That's accounting straight out of Mel Brooks as the producers without that. But on Wednesday evening, Abigail reported that, in fact, the other 47.5% owner, Mike Corda, 
has indeed sold his shares to Antonio Brown, who now it holds 95% of the team, along with uh, folks who I'm sure they're very nice, Charlotte and Steve Von Schiller, who own the remaining 5%. Definitely the two-month-old Antonio Brown era of the Albany Empire has been interesting, and I have no reason to think, Jess, that it is about to become any less interesting. All right, an exciting season we've got in store here. We will definitely be following that. All right, one last topic, and it's a pretty exciting one for us. The votes are in. The Capital Region has spoken. The results for this year's Best of 2023 are out. Can you tell us who some of the winners are and maybe some of the upsets? Speaking for myself, look, I I love all Capital Region pizza. There is no bad Capital Region pizza and lots of really good Capital Region pizza. But look, I'm an editor. I've got to remain objective. But when it comes to pizza, I am a big fan of Kay's Bird and Lake. I love it. They came in second this year after winning, I'm pretty sure, first place a couple of times in recent years. They're always near the top. But the belt, as it were, this year goes to DeFazio's in Troy for best pizza single location. You know, looking over just the dining section of this outstanding collection of readers' choices uh, is enough to make you salivate and want to hit hit the town or several towns. You know, best Indian or Pakistani restaurant, Caravali up in Latham. I've been there. And leading that just made me think about their uh, outstanding spinach dish. Great stuff. And as we have discussed before, Best Of is in no way scientific. People can vote a lot. This is, after all, Albany. That's a great tradition around here. (laughs) But it is a wonderful way to start the discussion about what makes this region great. This uh, project every year is the work of diverse hands, as they say. Gary Hahn, our outstanding managing editor for Features and Sports, and his team just do a terrific job. It's a wonderful digital presentation as well. I encourage people to read through it, tear it apart, throw it across the room, (laughs) go pick it up, read it again, throw it across the room again. That's fine. (laughs) And then ultimately maybe recycle it. (laughs) Yes. All right. Yes. So head over to timesunion.com to check out our digital version of that. And you can actually go back uh, a week or two. And we had the best comedian, Aaron Harks. We interviewed her on this very podcast. So check it out. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com and on all of our social channels. After the break, you know, I put on a little makeup, I get dressed, I breathe a lot, I do scales a lot, I look at my text a lot, and I drink a little. We'll talk to Isaac Mizrahi, world-renowned fashion designer and entertainer. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalique Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body 
has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The name Isaac Mizrahi is synonymous with high fashion. The star designer who rose to prominence in the 1990s has dressed countless A-listers for stage and screen. But lately, he has been the one in the spotlight, center stage. The Brooklyn-born entertainer is a polymath to the nth degree. His talents as a designer are only the tip of the iceberg. He's been touring the country in the last few years, singing and performing his own cabaret-style show. These vagabond shoes, which happen to be her mess, are long And step around the heart of it, New York, New York. He's headed to Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs this weekend. I got a chance to talk to him this week, and it was a delightful conversation. So I want to ask you, have you ever been to New York's capital region, to Albany, to Saratoga, to that to that part of the state? No, I have never been to, I mean, I've been to different parts of New York State, but I have never been to Saratoga Springs. Ah, do you know anything about it, about what it's famous for? I mean, I kind of know that there's a famous novel written by Edna Ferber called Saratoga, which I remember reading when I was a kid. And it's a great kind of a, a it was a resort place, right? Like they had these springs that kind of revived people. It was like a natural spring. So yeah. I do know about it. And there was this resort built around that spring. That's the only thing I know. Are you excited about coming here and performing for this audience? I am thrilled. I have to say, I think like, you know, my favorite, I mean, don't tell this to anybody. Well, you can tell everybody, but my favorite audiences are like, you know, kind of on the East Coast. I just like East Coast audiences a lot. I feel like people on the East Coast just are easier for me to communicate with. What can you tell us about your show? I know you don't want to spoil things, you know, for the audience. What can you tell us, you know, what we can look forward to when you're at Universal Preservation Hall? Well, the music, I'm telling you, it might be better than what you expect. The music is going to be really, really good, at least by my standards, you know. And I'm not saying I'm a great singer, even though I am a great singer. But, you know, I mean, like the point is the music is really good. It's really like something that's been developed and developed over a number of years. I've been working with the same band, you know, since the late 20th century, darling, since like 1996 or something like that. So me and Ben Waltzer and Joe 
and one or two of the other musicians. We've been working together for that long. And so we have a kind of a sound that we have. And it's jazz. So, you know, especially if you like jazz music. But also there's a lot of me in the show. There's a lot of like talking, you know. I tell a lot of stories in the show. And a lot of it is kind of structured. It's almost like a like a structured kind of a beginning, middle, end. But so many things happen off the top of my head. A lot of the show takes place kind of extemporaneously. And, um, and I think that that's probably like everyone's favorite part, you know, of, of, of the show is the stuff that just happens on the spot. That's the magic, right? You know, you're never going to you're never going to have the same experience twice. That's right. And, you know, like um, people call it, oh, Isaac's Cabaret show. But now it's really just more like almost a concert kind of a thing, because I've been playing less venues, less cabaret venues and more kind of theatrical venues. Right. Can you tell me what the theme is? Like, do, do you have like, can you share that exactly? It's a very gay show. It's a really gay show. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's about me, about me. And it's about what I perceive in the world. And so, you know, there's a lot about culture in the show, a lot of observations about culture. There's a lot about like sort of being, shall we call it middle-aged, you know? Uh Um, There's a lot of, you know, stories about people I know, a lot of people in the show, you know? That's the recurring theme. It's like, you know, me, me, me. Okay, how's that for a scene? Me. (laughs) It's perfect. Now tell me, how do you prepare for a show? How do you like psych yourself up in like the hours and minutes before you go on? Well, you know, I have to say we're very well prepared. I feel like that's a really important thing to honor an audience that way, to really be very, very prepared. In other words, the music we review to the nth degree and a lot of the stories I kind of have, you know, tailored and tailored and tailored for that specific audience. The hardship is not... Elaine Stritch has this fantastic quote. She says, and she's 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 quoting like a prostitute. She says, it's not the work, it's the stairs, you know? And that's so true. It's not the singing in the shows and the and the remembering stuff. And the, it's really the kind of like just getting there, right? Like overcoming the stage fright, right? Overcoming the stage fright is the biggest thing. And so you asked about like my preparation and mostly the preparation has to do with kind of bolstering my creative ego and telling myself that I can do this and that I will be great. And, you know, the more I do, the easier it gets for me to walk in front of people, but it's never easy. I do suffer a great deal from stage fright, you know, and I'll tell you what else goes into it. So I, you know, I put on a little makeup, I get dressed, I breathe a lot. I do scales a lot. I look at my text a lot. And I drink a little. I have a little drink before I go on. And I never did that before, you know. But I noticed that the musicians are two or three in by the time the show starts. And so I thought, you know what? Let me try this. And then I swear to God, they're right. You know, like, it's about having fun. It's about arriving and you, the minute they see you, they understand that it's going to be a fun night. And in order to kind of get into that mood, you kind of have to have a little bit of a drink, you know. What's your yeah. drinking choice? My drinking choice is a rosé spritzer, which I know sounds very light, but I'm a, I'm a lightweight, darling. I'm a lightweight. I'm not a not a big drinker, but I'm actually a figure skater, and I definitely suffer from pre-competition nerves. But I don't know if. Oh. I- I don't know if drinking would help me. <laughs> I don't know in that case. I'm not sure because that's like a real physical 
<laughs> I think you have all of your physical wits about you. But you know what? There's a few things to keep in mind about this, right? One is people are there to kind of love you. They're not there to watch you fail, probably, you know? They're there to love you. Well, at least in my case, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know what it is for like co competitive skaters because maybe there are a few there and there are people who might go like, oh, I, I hope she goes down because I want my guy to win or something, you know? <laughs> well, that's not helping you. But for me, what helps is like they're there. They bought the tickets because they like you a lot, you know? And I always feel that whenever I walk into the room and I hear the applause, it's like, oh, right. And so my advice to people who are trying to do this is like, you know, it's almost like a fake it till you make it thing. You have to control your nurse for at least the first minute when you get out and they'll give you this energy. They will feed you this energy, which will give you the, the gall to kind of go on. I love that. That's a that's a beautiful piece of advice. I you know, I really do believe that. Now, in terms of like things like costuming and, you know, outfits for what you wear when you go on stage and what, you know, the people that you go on stage. Right. with, What do you think about there? Like, what is your strategy? I'm actually thinking about that so much more these days than when I started 25 years ago on stage. Since then, you know, since I started getting back into, you know, since I started in the clubs and then on stage recently, it's always been about just kind of showing up and looking kind of good and thin. You know what I mean? But then over the past like three or four years, I've actually been like I had this big beaded suit made for me about three years or what like two years before the pandemic. So that was five years ago. I had this big beaded suit made and albeit it was black, it was beaded with this beautiful kind of like almost like bullfightery Spanish kind of beading. Right. And then one year I wore all these pearls, you know, and this year I had like this thing made and I've been wearing it on stage. It's like a little you know what? I'm not going to give it away because I don't want to give it away. It's like it's kind of a surprise. Uh -huh. But I look, I'll, I'll give you this. I, I'm guessing more and more like Joan Rivers every day. You know, how's that for like an answer? That's a good and I love it. Who is your inspiration when you come to the stage? Do you think about, I know you said Joan Rivers, but like, do you think about like, you know, Sondheim or, you know, who do you think about when you when you go to put together a show and then get on stage? Well, you know, it's funny. I used to be really good friends with Liza Minnelli and I followed her, you know, I made clothes for her and I was backstage with her a lot. You know, I did um, female impersonations when I was a tiny little kid and my one of my best ones was Liza. And then when I met her, it was something so surreal, you know, there's a way that she has of like walking on stage, of walking into a room. You can't take your eyes off her. You must watch her. She's so compelling. And this is a lesson that you get, like when you're close to her, you know, you understand more and more how she does that. You know, nobody will ever be able to beat that because she got that down, you know, but she does give you this lesson. And she did tell me a million times. She was like, oh, you know, you're nervous, right? Well, think of yourself after the show. What's your favorite thing to eat? You know, ice cream. What's your what's your favorite flavor? Ice cream. Think of yourself two hours from now at home, in your bed, eating a big bowl of ice cream and nothing matters. It's really that, right? And I was like, wow, Liza, that's great. You know, so she really, she really has inspired me a great deal as a performer, you know? Since you do so many things, what is something that you have never done or tried that you've always wanted to do or try? You know, I, I, I know I'll never be able to be a dancer. I tried being a dancer when I was a kid. I just have this crazy, ill-formed body and very high arches and crazy legs. But 
I love ballet. And I thought that would be my dream job, a ballet dancer, like responding to the music on that kind of like on the regular, you know? And the other thing I always wanted to do was a, be a chef, like a professional chef. Uh, so those are two things I might end up being, I might end up like, I don't know what, like opening a restaurant someday. But as far as being a ballet dancer, I think it's a little too late. I think it's never too late for anything, but that's, you know. Well, darling, I think it's a little too late to be a good ballet dancer. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> if there's anything else you want to say to, you know, the audience up here in the Albany, Saratoga region, um, the floor is yours. You know what? I just want them to come to see my show because I think if they come, they'll really, really enjoy themselves, you know, and so and, and, and be prepared for a very big surprise. And for me, surprise is everything. Surprise in life, everything, you know. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you up here in Saratoga. Have a safe trip. OK, well, thank you, Jessica. Isaac Mizrahi's playing Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs on Friday, April 21st at 7.30 p.m. Head over to proctors.org to get tickets. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler for his contribution to this episode.